Well, good morning. Um, today we are continuing our series in Exodus, and you're welcome to remain standing as we prepare to hear God's Word. That series is called From Darkness to Light, and last week um, we talked about God bringing the people of God through the Red Sea and constituting this new nation, basically, um, and it was in a miraculous, miraculous salvation that He worked. Today, we're going to see something a little bit more prosaic, but sometimes it's harder to trust God in the prosaic, that God fulfills and sustains our every need in Him. Less miraculous, but sometimes more difficult to trust His provision, isn't it? Let's open up God's Word and see what He has to say to us, mainly in Exodus 16 and 17. Then they, that is the people, came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. They set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt." And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not." On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because He has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that, we grum that you grumble against us? And Moses said, When the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat, and the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against Him, what are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. Skipping to 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. And to 17. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, "'Give us water to drink.' And Moses said to them, "'Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord?' But the people thirsted there for water. And the people grumbled against Moses and said, "'Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst?' So Moses cried to the Lord, "'What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me.' And the Lord said to Moses, "'Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Oreb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink.' And Moses did so, in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarreling of the people of Israel, and because they tested the Lord by saying, "'Is the Lord amongst us or not?' Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. This is the word of the Lord. 
Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do look to you for our sustenance. We bring to you our requests and petitions for bread, for water. And Lord God, we particularly pray that you would feed us by this living word, this living bread. Would you give us the living water that is Christ Jesus himself, even as you make him known through these passages of Scripture. Holy Spirit, come that we would hear and be encouraged. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So this week reminded me a lot of 2021 in February as we now know it, the snowpocalypse of 2021. If you were in San Antonio at that time, you experienced all that snow outside. And uh, I have to say I was pretty confident about my preparation for the winter storm this year because of that storm two years ago. How wrong I was. How wrong I was. A couple of years ago, I woke up. My house was built in 1912, so it breathed a lot. It was probably about 35 degrees in the house when I woke up those two years ago. I could see my breath coming in the air, and uh, that was really frustrating, you know? Um, But thankfully, amazingly, my preparation had worked out well. The water in our pipes flowed for three days during that storm, even though I had no power in the house over those three days. Okay, so fast forward a couple of years, I move into a, or a family moves into a warmer house. It's more insulated, it's updated and ready to go. And I do what most of you do. I dripped my pipes and I covered all those things that were exposed and I went to bed nice and secure and safe in a warm house. Then I woke up the next day, groggy, the words floating over the bed from my wife, Matthew, we have no water. No, no, what did I do? You would have given me like an A minus in preparation, and I still lost water. My pipes had froze. Needless to say, that Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning this week, I was pretty grumbly, pretty grumbly, pretty worried about what was going to happen. Would a pipe burst, waiting for the water to come back on? Now, thankfully, thankfully, the crisis was averted, the pipes came back on, and I didn't have anything spilling or flowing out. Thank God. But in that time, I really needed this passage. I really needed this passage. You've all been there, right? God, why me? Why did you do this to me? I mean, why? What what was I thinking? How come I bought this house in the first place? Why did you lead me to do that? You know, you start blaming, getting frustrated, and grumbling at God's provision. I'm sure we've all been there. As we walk with the Israelites through this story of being in the wilderness, there's a lot of grumbling going on, isn't there? Look at 17.7, towards the end of your passage. After these events in the wilderness, Moses names these two places, Massa and Meribah, meaning quarreling and testing. And I think if we're honest, we could name our days and our weeks and even our years by names like this. That was the time when I was living in self-pity. Yeah, I remember those days, grumbling and frustrated about what God was doing. That was my hiding or running away stage. But here's the deal. God really does care for us even when we are grumbling in the wilderness. And He's still at work still at work when we grumble. In fact, there's a little bit of a double entendre going on with that name, Masa, which means testing. It's not just that we put God to the test. 
He actually puts us to the test. Look at 16.4. The people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I might, might test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Now, I don't know about you, but I didn't love taking tests in school. There might be a couple of you who are great test takers who are like, oh, I can't wait. There's a test tomorrow. And you would just kind of look at them, you know? I bet you there's a couple of you in here like that. But most of the time, we don't want to be tested. We don't want our weaknesses to be exposed. And if we knew God was testing us, we would say, I don't want Him to flunk me. But there is some good news about the tests that God brings us through. Exodus 20, 20, do not fear, God says, for God has come to test you that the fear of Him may be before you that you may not sin. Do not fear the test because I'm teaching you how to grow. Right? This is what a test does. They expose our weakness and our sin and our faithlessness and our grumbling. But God doesn't exploit those weaknesses against us. He actually exposes our hearts so that He would lead us to grow in faithfulness and learn contentment. That's why He brings us through the test, so we could grow in faithfulness and learn contentment. So that's how we're going to look at the passage today. We're going to look at the Israelites and all their weaknesses that are exposed here, and we will hopefully see ourselves as a mirror in all of the difficulties that they go through. But then we're going to see God's grace as He leads us into a deeper love for Him, trust in Him, and contentment in Him. Okay, so let's look at the weak points of our faith. At the end of chapter 15, we're told that the Israelites have been encamping at Elim. Now, Elim in the Hebrew means tree, and there's a reason that that oasis is called tree. There are 70 palm trees there, 12 springs, and so the people of God would have been well-fed and watered the dates on those palm trees, giving food a plenty. Then chapter 16 tells us that they set out from this oasis of abundance on the 15th day of the second month, exactly one month after the Passover. Now, for reference, they will get to Sinai in the third month. And so, even though this is probably a longer walk than any of us have been on, except for you Appalachian Trail people out there, it's relatively short. It's a three-month journey uh, in the wilderness. But... Regardless, the bread is starting to go stale or it's been eaten already. And so 16.3 gives us some insight into how the people of God are feeling on this trip. Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. You can just feel their self-pity there, can't you? Just feel their self-pity. Why did you do this to me? Why are you doing It was so much better where I was. And you like kind of pause for a second there and you're like, wait a second. You're saying that you would prefer slavery under Pharaoh to pass over life in God? I know it's the wilderness. I know it's difficult. But didn't you just see him bring you through the Red Sea? Surely it's better walking with God. But what's really interesting is there's actually a little bit more going on here. It's not just that they're really hungry. Look at 17.3. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock 
with thirst. Oh, that's interesting. The people of God aren't quite in as dire a position as they say they are. They have food. They could even have meat pots full of food. They've got livestock with them. Lack of food isn't the real issue. So what's the real issue? Robert Alter, commentator, notices something that commentators have noticed for centuries about this passage. Here's what he says. As people whose principal wealth is their flocks, they are loath to make heavy inroads into their livestock for the purpose of food on the journey. They don't want to kill their livestock because that's what's going to enrich them. So they're like, God, we want a free lunch. The people of Israel are about as starving as your teenager is when he opens the pantry and says, I'm starving, there's nothing to eat. Sorry, teenagers. The real problem is that the people want a free lunch, right? You see it again in 16, 19 through 20. God tells the people of Israel to not hoard the manna, but they try to save it, and then the manna rots. Right? This is how self pity works. We take what we want and we make it into what we need. And then that self-pity deepens into a selfish indulgent and a hoarding heart. We relate to God as if He's stingy, a miser toward us with a heart of privilege, with a heart of deserving and not hearts of humility. Think about it. When you get something good so often, so often we want to just squeeze the blessings out of that good thing, right? We know that wine is something good that God has given, but too much wine is terrible for us. We know that food is a great gift, but overindulgent hurts us. And it's not just with our physical needs either, is it? It's with this hole in our heart that wants to consume and have and keep things that is corroding us. The party goes too late, the vacation is too long, one more drink, one more show. Give me the words of affirmation that I want, the gifts that I want. Give me me and mine. In the movie Cool Runnings, John Candy, the coach of the Jamaican bobsled team, says something that I think is cool. That's the thing about gold medals. He says, if you aren't enough without it, you'll never be enough with it. The Israelites have turned their flocks from sustenance into wealth, sustenance into, the, into wealth, and they're never going to have enough, their greedy hearts will slowly corrode. It kind of begs the question for us, right? What good things from God have you turned from blessings into necessities? What are the things that you're holding on to so strongly that you are just squeezing them until they break? Then look at what we do next. We turn against the people that we think stand in the way of us getting what we want. 16.2, they grumbled against Moses and Aaron. 17.2, they quarreled with Moses. The people's response gets so bad that in 17.4, Moses thinks he's about to get stoned, and you can see the escalation from grumbling to quarreling to riotous almost, riotous behavior. Each time they try to pin the problem on Moses and Aaron, but each time they remind them, hey, it's not actually us, it's God who is leading you into this wilderness place. This is called displacement. It's an ancient problem. When you take all of the bad things in your life and you pin it on someone else that's not the real culprit, 
It's like when a manager yells at you at work, and who do you take it out on? Your family. Or kids, it's when you have a bad day at school, and your parents are just a much easier target. Well, here's the heart issue. When you're frustrated with what's going on around you in your life, you probably need to look and say, God, I'm probably frustrated with you. Probably frustrated with you here. Like Adam, it was that woman that you gave me. When our hearts are greedy and grumbly against God, they turn against people in our lives, especially the people over us. People become obstacles to be avoided or attacked as opposed to people to be loved or respected. Listen to James 4, 1 and 2. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. What would our relationship with God, with others, start to look like if we, instead of grumbling under our breath, with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, made those requests known to God. What would it look like? I think a lot better, wouldn't it? Look back at this week or this month or this year. It was a test. It was a test. God has been showing us our corrosive hearts, our grumbling, our sins, and our weaknesses. But remember, God doesn't test you to exploit those weaknesses. That's not what He does. God tests you and shows you your weaknesses so that He can give you His grace. He opens you up to see these are the areas in my life where I need your grace. Lord, help me. That's what He's doing. So look at the passage again. A careful eye will actually see God's amazing grace to His people who always fail the test. 16.4, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you. 17.6, excuse me, you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it and the people will drink. Notice the way that God provides. He starts by just granting their requests. He doesn't do that where He's just like, you know what, I'll give you what you need but first, I need you to get your act together a little bit. Like, that's fine that you request it. Can I hear it in the right tone, please? That's beautiful. I said, okay, I'm going to grant your requests first. My grace will come into your life first. So look at 16, 17, and 18. They gathered, that is the manna and the quail, some more, some less. Whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. And God is just providing. He's just providing for us. And it'll be enough. It'll be enough. Now, I know some people in this room have much, and some people in this room have little. And I just love that phrase there, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. If you're anything like me, and you are probably, you've grown up in a capitalist economy your whole life. What are the two principles of that economy? Scarcity and self-interest. Scarcity and self-interest. In this economy, those are the fundamental principles that I kind of live with in my heart. But what is God teaching us here? In the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, there is no scarcity with God. He will provide. It's not about self-interest. He loves you. He cares about you. What you have, you're given to share beautiful thing. Do you believe that? 
Brian Fickert, who's coming to Redeemer for the Contemporary Culture Conference, whose book, Becoming Whole, is out there in the, uh, in, the, in the foyer. Go pick it up. He writes a story in it that I'll give to you. He talks about a, an equipping ministry that works with predominantly um, lower-income communities and churches in a non-Christian Asian country. Okay, so it's like a ministry that's helping these churches and communities go from poverty to plenty. And one of the things about this ministry is they don't bring any foreign aid in. They don't just bring American or Western dollars in order to lift these people out of poverty. They actually teach just the principles of sharing and prayer and trusting in God for His provision. And what's happened that over the last 10 years or so is that 500 of these communities have just been come out of poverty have come out of poverty. The government is just like blown away by this. They're sending PhD students, and these PhD students are coming back, and they're reporting on what's going on, and they're just like, they just trust the Christian God for their provision. (laughs) That's what's happening there. It's incredible. One of the stories that he shares is that there was this big drought in the land. There's big drought in the land, and crops are dying, and these communities have nothing else to do. They come together, they pray, they ask God to bless them, and that's what they're doing. And then it comes the time of the harvest, and they have root plants. So you can't actually see what's going on underneath the surface. And when they harvest, they have a plentiful harvest, three times their normal harvest. Three times their normal harvest. Not only does it enrich them, but because everyone else don't, doesn't have these vegetables anymore, it's actually these crops are worth three times more than normal. Incredible story. Do you struggle to believe it? I do. I do. But God is asking us to enter in. Whoever gathered much had none left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. God loves to provide for His people's needs. He does. So enter into that. And God gives us a practical way of trusting Him. Okay, so that's the promise. Here's the practice. By learning to rest. Look at 16.5. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as what they gather daily. So here's what's happening. The explicit command to Sabbath is going to happen in Exodus chapter 20. This, four chapters before, is like God saying, hey, I'm going to give you rest. I'm going to give you plenty on the sixth day so you don't have to do any work on the seventh day. That's a huge blessing to the Israelites. They had 10-day work weeks in Egypt. That's how Egyptians uh, divvied up their calendar, 10 days, three weeks in a month. And I don't think the slaves got a day off. Now God is giving six days of work, one day of full and complete rest. And there's this really interesting, beautiful construction in 16, 17, uh, 16, 7, and 8. They talk about God's glory in the evening and His glory in the morning. And what's happening here is it's hearkening back to the creation story. There was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day. And it's like God is saying this. It's not so much that Sabbath rest is a law I'm imposing on top of you. It's that written into your DNA is a longing to rest and cease from your labors and enjoy me. Written into your DNA, it's not this law above, it's this creational reality that every single one of us have. We just need to rest in the Lord. It's a practice. It's a practice that's difficult. It's active practice rest the Sabbath. And I know it's hard for many of us. It's a strong pushback against our culture to do that. But it's good for us. 
to learn together as a people of God how to practice resting in Him. Another beautiful reminder of God's grace to us comes in the manna itself. When the manna is described in chapter 16, verse 31, it's called like coriander seed, white. The taste of it was like wafers made with honey. I think if we're honest, one of the reasons that we're so discontent is that we look at our neighbor and we think, man, the grass is greener over there, don't we? The grass is just greener over there. It's easier for them. But here's the deal. There is a place with greener grass. It's just not your neighbor's yard. It's the promised land. When we're seeing in our hearts this gap and we're like, I know there's greener grass somewhere. Don't look at it, your neighbor. Look to the promised land. That's what's going on. This manna, which tastes like honey, is this small foretaste, this reminder that there is a day coming in the promised land, which is flowing with milk and honey, honey. Jesus Himself picks up the imagery in John 6, 51, I'm the living bread that's come down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. To have Jesus is to have everything. There is no greener grass. And so as a community of people, that's what we're practicing together even today where we practice rest and Sabbath with one another, where we eat His flesh given, served for us in this bread at this table. God is providing and reminding us that He will provide everything that we need so that we can be content in Him. The last provision I want to show you from this chapter comes chapter 17. The people of God are moving through Sinai, right? And as they're going on their journey, they're not going to go back west towards Egypt. They can't go south towards the sea, so they can either go north or they can go east through Sinai. To the north, there's the desert, but there are also wadis, ravines, places where there is water, places to get water. But instead, Moses and the Lord lead them east, and so the people are frustrated, right? The people are frustrated. They continue east to a place called Rephidim. Then in 17.8, Amalek comes and fights Israel at Rephidim. Thankfully, in that next chapter that I didn't have printed for you, God defeats them. This is where Moses holds up his arms. Deuteronomy 25, we're given a little bit more information about this Amalekite ambush. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fit God. Okay, now we get a little bit more information. Why did God not take them straight north? Because that's where Amalek was encamped. That's where Amalek was encamped. Sometimes, sometimes what God does for us to provide is tells us no. That's a hard thing to realize, right? It's the hard thing that comes into our life that leads us into a better path. It's the cough that actually shows us that we have the disease. It's the failed uh, job interview at the company that went bust, right? It's the no on the date that led you to your spouse. The principle here is this. God is not going to say yes to you all the time, but God is always going to be more faithful to you than you could be to yourself. we got to know that. 
This passage comes to a crisis point in 17.4. The people are about to stone Moses, right? But God intervenes in verses 5 and 6. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Go, behold, I will stand with you there at the rock on Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Think about this imagery with you. Staff, with me. The staff is this implement of devastation. He struck the Nile and it became blood. But then when he strikes the rock, it's an implement of salvation, that water will flow from it. But who is standing on the rock? The Lord Himself there. And so the imagery that we see is this this staff of devastation coming right down where God Himself is standing. What is being shown to us? God brought down His ultimate wrath on Jesus, who is the Christ. He was the one who was struck. He was the one who experienced the devastation of punishment so that we could experience the bread of life and the living water that comes from Him. Let's now put all of this together and go back to the imagery of a test. If God was grading your test, right, with a red pen in hand, you kind of look at the top and He's got His notes for you, right? Well, He'd point out our stubborn hearts, our corrosive hearts, the way that we try to hoard things. Then He'd give us areas of improvement, rest in me, come and taste and see that I am good, enjoy the feast together. But then you'd see your grade. Then you'd see your grade, A plus. 100%. How can He give us this grade? Because Jesus is the one who for all of our faithlessness and our discontent and our frustration, our anger at God even, is the one who took that penalty so that we could just walk in His blessings. Walk in His blessings. All that's left for us is just to receive Him. Not just manna, but bread from heaven. Not just water, but the living water that will carry us into eternal life. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for providing this living water, this true bread from heaven. We ask you, Lord Jesus, remind us <laughs> that you have passed the test for us. It's hard sometimes to see that our weaknesses are exposed in you, but expose us so that you might give us grace for each of our difficulties and our faithlessness. We ask that you would do that for us by your grace. And because you love us dearly, pray in Christ's name. Amen.